an interesting variety of uh, religious takes on Ecclesiastes, often centering on why this book is in the Bible at all. <coughs> Especially those of a fairly conservative theological bent may wonder that and have wondered it out loud. The author barely mentions God and takes no comfort in the assurances that there is eventual justice in this world, or that heaven awaits, or indeed that there's a God at all. They, I will say they, because we don't know the sex of the writer, who called themselves Kohelet, they believe in God, but but they aren't comforted by God's magnificence, as in the book of Job or by a belief that God will reward good and punish evil in time, as in the Psalms. In fact, they read like a scrupulously honest person in the throes of a crisis of meaning. And I've certainly thought, reading um, the the full book, which is quite short, that it's a lot like somebody who's in a significant bout of anxiety at times, or of depression. They're not consistent. The book tries out different solutions and musings, and their most often repeated advice, murmured to themselves as much as given to their students, does not attempt to resolve the problems that are laid out. Do your work. Enjoy your food and drink and the other joys of life. But don't seek permanency or even novelty in these. They're not so much answers to the questions as just general advice for life, given that we have these questions that cannot be answered. So it's no wonder that religious skeptics, on the other hand, have embraced Ecclesiastes as one of their own. It's so great to have a voice in the Bible that's expressing all these sorts of doubts and not ever tying them up neatly at the end with a bow. And in fact, our hymnal shares these verses in the section at the back of the readings. The reading there is entitled, The Cry of the Realist. As if to say, finally, somebody in the Bible who really gets it. And I think all of these things are true. It's just not unique in the Bible, but beautifully, vividly so. Kohelet expresses what almost anybody who reflects on life at some point feels. What is this all for? What is the meaning of this life, given that it doesn't last and that we see the same people doing the same things over and over? So I was really delighted that when Wajo bid high on the, um, on the auction offering, you choose the sermon topic, he asked me to, to preach about these first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. I'd never really dug into them this way before, um, and certainly um, not from this pulpit. And um, not to frighten you, if you bid on that uh, in the future, you do not have to then be the worship <laughs> associate. But, um, <laughs> but Wage and I both agreed that that would be really fun. So, uh, so he's also our guest worship associate today. So the two concerns that really stand out to me in these first 11 verses are um, 
permanence and novelty. And I think I have two very different sort of takes on those. So, and, and, and mostly I think I want to talk about novelty. So, so I will start there. First of all, he, the author is very, very concerned um, about whether there's anything new, right? Is there anything new under the sun? And over and over they answer no. You go around and you just see the same things that have been done before. But I do want to note that this author wrote there is nothing new under the sun around, the date is disputed, but around three to four centuries before, um, before the common era, before Jesus. And as world-weary as we may also sometimes get, surely we can be grateful for this. Unlike Kohelet, we live in a time after Bach wrote what we heard today. Today, we don't know much about it, just that it existed and what some of the instruments were. And clearly, as much as he liked it, in the end of the day, he said, ho-hum. I'm assuming he's a man again. Ooh, it really slips if you don't pay attention. <laughs> but we know that tremendous inventiveness lies ahead for humanity, just in the realm of music, that the people of Kohelet's time could not even imagine Mozart, or Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> or Angelique Kidjo, or Inayat Khan, you just don't get to be jaded when you have no idea that that's all still to come. And surely, though, we may think there, there is not possible new music to be written. If we ever feel that way, we can look at Kohelet and think, huh, maybe a couple thousand years from now, there will be amazing things that we just can't imagine as well. I find for myself, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the visual arts, that when I go into a gallery or museum and see all the ways that human beings are still responding to our lives in visual form, I'm amazed at how much new there is. Each mind filters the world anew, and for every work that's basically a repetition of something I've seen before, there's another one that's just unique. Unique because it's channeled through those particular eyes and expressed by those particular hands. And each of us has a unique combination to bring to the world. But in any case, no matter how original we are or are not, I think our valuation of the brand new is greatly inflated. If Ecclesiastes thought it was bad, they should see 21st century market-driven culture on a planet where there's no place of point of land still unexplored. I mean, there was a time that princes and presidents paid adventurers to stake out territory no human eyes had seen. And they usually failed. Others had been there before. And the European explorers could only pride themselves on being first to behold the Pacific, or the islands of the Caribbean, by dismissing from the ranks of humanity the people they found actually living there. <laughs> I think of uh, the famous sonnet by, um, by Keats 
Uh, he knew, by the way, that he got this wrong, but he talks about, uh, it's called on, on uh, first looking into Chapman's Homer, and talks about how when he first read this lively translation into the English of Homer, it, it felt like he imagined it must have felt Cortez, he says, it's wrong, it was Balboa, seeing the Pacific for the first time. Maybe so. But I was just reading, rereading a book I reread every few years, um, a book called The Starship and the Canoe that's a, a double biography of the physicist Freeman Dyson um, and his son, who's now a scholar and um, author published in his own right, George Dyson. But at the time of the, book, the, the writing of the book, um, George was in his early 20s. And um, they had very different lives, Freeman um, working in the exalted realm of physics and briefly, and this is what gives the, the, the um, title, the word starship, um, briefly a part of the Orion project, which was quickly scrapped, but at one time was looking at actual interplanetary travel in our lifetimes. And George living mostly in tree houses or kayaks in the um, quite scattered, uh, not densely populated archipelago of British Columbia and uh, Alaska. I bring up this book because they had two markedly different ideas of novelty, as their biographer Kenneth Brower talks. Freeman wanted, uh, as he says, Freeman wanted to create a ship that could land us on other planets because, as he saw it, there was no new territory on Earth. And Brower writes, Freeman's argument that interplanetary space is necessary as frontier was wrong, I thought. We have as many spatial frontiers on Earth as we ever did. Freeman liked to invoke Columbus, but I could invoke Columbus too. Before that discoverer came, the Indians and the Norse had certainly come, and maybe the Irish, Egyptians, Phoenicians, and various lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> it was still a new land that Columbus found. He goes on, long stretches of the coastline from where we lay, south to Vancouver Island, were deserted now. After the busy days of dugout canoes when small villages had stood everywhere, the country was all waiting to be known again. Most discovery is rediscovery. The best discoveries are personal anyway, and not the kind commissioned by queens and scientific academies. The idea that Earth's landscapes have been used up in some way was, for me, peculiar. I think, in a way, that's what Keats was saying, too. Maybe Balboa and his men were the first Europeans to see the Pacific. But what Keats is saying is, I feel the same way, just reading words in my own language that other people have been reading for thousands of years. They don't, I'm not the first to read Homer, but it's new to me. But also, and this is a little ironic reading Ecclesiastes, there's a comfort in knowing that people have wrestled with the same kinds of problems as we, as we wrestle for, for thousands of years and in all cultures. I find it ironic because one of the people who gives me that kind of comfort is Ecclesiastes. 
at moments when we may feel as if we have to start from scratch, at moments when we wonder if we have brand new problems never known to anyone before this century, it's deeply reassuring to open a novel by Jane Austen, say, and in her sardonic observations of the people around her, realize that human nature has been laden with little follies and hypocrisies and wisdom and kindness for a very long time. And that previous humans have left us guides for understanding ourselves. It's refreshing to read Marcus Aurelius and see that the Stoics, like us, struggled to find meaning, to master their emotions, to cope with loss, and they wrote down their wisdom to help us, their younger siblings in humanity. As with the younger Dyson, George Dyson's rediscovery of the land and waters that others had already explored and inhabited, making our own discoveries of ideas and experiences and places and feelings does not depend on our being the first in order to be high points of our lives. These discoveries, rediscoveries, bring us into the company of others even as they are new to us. For example, the first time that you fell in love, if you have had that experience, did you think, oh well, others have done the same before? <laughs> it's no big deal. No. I think you thought, wow. And also, so this is what all those songs and stories are movies and movies are trying to say. You feel the companionship of people who've had similar experiences before. So that would be my answer to Ecclesiastes about novelty. There's plenty of novelty to be had. And if really nothing seems new to your eye or your ear, probably you should be checked for depression. <laughs> a category, a way of thinking, a word we didn't, that people didn't have in Kohelet's time because there's so much still to discover and so little time in which to do it. So speaking of more t of time, I want to speak a little of this problem of permanence that I find a little stickier, I think, <coughs> because we really can't answer it. We cannot say to Kohelet, oh yes, things last forever. We can only be agnostic on that point if we have any hope of it at all. And in this exploration of, do things last? And what meaning do they have for us if they don't? I see links between many disparate thinkers, people of very different times and cultures. There's that link between Ecclesiastes and Stoicism that we already drew by hearing from Marcus Aurelius today. There's the existentialists who are in some regard uh, the inheritors of Stoicism, though they took those ideas in different directions. There's Buddhism. There's Confucianism, such as we sang. Many, many teachers, people who wrestled with these questions themselves and said, here's what I got, everybody, have tried to focus our attention not on permanence, but on what we've got right now. Because the past is gone, and permanence is just another way of trying to live in the future. 
where we don't know what's going to happen. All we really have, as anybody realizes when they try meditating for a while, is what's happening right now. So that's what Ecclesiastes means, I think, by the word vanity. It's often translated as well, meaninglessness. It doesn't mean vanity in the sense of pride. Um, it's the word in Hebrew, hebel, uh, which means literally breath or vapor. And it's used a couple of times in the Bible in that literal sense, but almost always figuratively, the way Kohelet is using it, uh, meaning mere air, something that vanishes, something evanescent, and it's often used to mean human life itself. We are, we are as brief as a breath. It's interesting to contrast that with another Hebrew word for breath, ruach, which is also used largely figuratively throughout the Bible to mean spirit, much as our words for respiration, inspiration, spirit are all linked in their roots. The spirit may be the thing that Kohelet is wrestling with. How can I make this permanent, this thing that just seems to, to flit? And yet here it is. It is just like breath. It comes and goes. It's very brief. If meaning is in lasting, then it has no meaning to speak of. A little, another little piece of background about Kohelet's time is important because Judaism, of course, takes many, many forms and it was to change not long after their time. Um, Judaism goes on to develop, perhaps in response to Christianity, some ideas of an afterlife, although even now in most Judaism, that's not much of a concern. You'll see it in folk writings and so on, but in general, Judaism, and in here perhaps it's influenced Unitarian Universalism, is a very this-worldly religion. Well, that was true in spades in Kohelet's time. When Kohelet talks about what is to become of each of us, the phrase they use is the pit, the word sheol, and it, it means a pit, like a grave, the grave that humanity Everybody, everybody in humanity one day shares. It's not heaven, and it's not hell where we're going. It's not a place of punishment, although maybe the idea that hell is under the ground came from this word sheol and the fact that what we generally do with people's bodies after they're gone in, in Western culture is put them under the ground. But when Kohala asked what becomes of us after all the things we do in our lives, where does it end? They were saying, in shale, in the pit. It, which is another way of saying, we don't know. All we know is our physical being ends and what happens next. On that point, this religion, this teaching is pretty agnostic, pretty much doesn't concern itself. It leaves us not knowing. So with that kind of impermanence in mind, practices like Buddhist meditation are just poised to help us pay attention to what we do have. And what they focus on is the breath. There are practical reasons for that. 
The breath is always present, whether we're aware of it, deliberately breathing in or paying no attention at all. And yet, unlike something like a heartbeat, it's always detectable, very easy for us to notice with our conscious mind. But there's also a deeper meaning to why we might focus on the breath. And I think it's here in Ecclesiastes' use of this word over and over, hebel, vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. It's so, so brief, the breath. And so as we watch the breath go in and we watch it go out, goes in, it goes out. We are facing again and again this brevity, this puff of air that is all that we have, something that the Stoics and the existentialists will also come to remind us. But there's a lot of ways of thinking about that all we have. Kohelet is feeling down at that moment and saying, is this all there is? Is this all we have? The length of a breath in and out? This moment? But another way of thinking of all we have is that it's all we need. It reminds me of something that the writer E.L. Doctorow said. He was speaking of writing a novel. He said, it's like driving a car at night. You can see only as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. <laughs> we can proceed only one breath at a time, and we never know which one will be our last, only that one day it will be. We don't have any idea whether anything remains after that or whether everything we are just ends up in shale, in the pit. But we can make the whole journey through life that way. So if there is consolation, as I believe, along with Weija, that there is, in these grapplings, these wrestlings of Kohelet, it's this, that we may not discover anything that others have never discovered, but it's there for us to discover again, which is all anybody has ever been able to be sure of doing, to discover things for themselves that no one else found. And consolation as well that every work of art, every discovery of science, every insight of the mind has been made by people as transient as we are just going through this life, seeing just as far as their headlights, one breath at a time. And so with Kohelet, we can say, we do our work, we love those we love, we feel the hand of somebody beside us, we make our own discoveries in the time that's given to us. We breathe in and we breathe out. So may it be.